For many years, I, um, I had a problem. Now, uh, my family would be only too keen to tell you that I certainly had more than one. Um, but this problem had to do uh, with my work. Now, for many of you, you, you may or may not know, I'm a, uh, I'm a respiratory and sleep specialist uh, working at the hospital. And uh, I really enjoy my job. I, uh, I, I feel quite strongly uh, that God was directing me uh, in, into, this, uh, into this occupation and to where I am uh, at the moment, where I'm serving. And I get a lot of pleasure uh, out, of, out of my job. But my problem is, and the problem I struggled for a long time was, how does this work in with being a sold-out Christian? The great problem was that, you know, when I was growing up in the church, uh, people would be brought along to speak at church who had been sold out for Christ. And so they gave, out, they gave up their occupation and they went to serve God uh, on the mission field. Uh, in one form or another, either be overseas or within, within our, our community in some form of mission. And they were sort of hung out there as these sort of almighty, sort of sold out for, for God people. And, and I was sitting there thinking, man, that's what I want to be. I want to be sold out for God. And one day I'm going to do that. But then I found myself in this position where I was working and I was busy from early hours to late sometimes. I was busy doing this work thinking, hang on a minute, God. How is this being sold out for you? Just recently I uh, read a, uh, a little book uh, called, called Anointed for Work by, by Richard Brunton. And interestingly, Richard Brunton uh, describes a very similar sort of struggle that he was having. Richard Brunton, as many of you may or may, or may not know, was one of the co-founders of Colmar Brunton, one of the uh, New Zealand's premier market researching group. And he became a Christian a couple years after setting up Colmar Brunton. And uh, he worked very much, you know, in his, in his job. And he was often um, asked to, to speak. And, and he recalls a, a time when he was asked to come along to a Christian businessmen's meeting. Uh, sort of a monthly gathering where someone was interviewed. Uh, and then people sort of had a bit of a chat about things. Uh, and this time it was his turn to be interviewed. And as he was being interviewed, um, he described it this way. He says, everything was going along nicely until I, I can't remember what provoked it. I began talking about the fact that as a Christian businessman, I felt like a second-class Christian because I wasn't in full-time ministry. I felt completely insignificant in the kingdom of heaven, like a wallet or source of funds, engaged in the worthless in order to give to the worthy. This feeling had been growing inside me, hidden in my heart, but I had never voiced it. In fact, 
I had never properly formulated it in my conscious mind. And as I began to share my thoughts, something broke deep in me, and I began to sob uncontrollably. To this day, I don't know whether it was my own personal grief or the grief of the Holy Spirit, or both. Richard Brunton goes on to explain that how after this, this interview, many of those gathered there came up to say to him that they felt the same. And I think, truth be told, many of us are in that same spot. We are involved in the workplace, we are involved with our occupations, but we sometimes struggle with how that actually ties in with being sold out for God. And, 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 and we automatically put this, this tear of, 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 of Christianity whereby people who have, have, have gone into full-time Christian ministry uh, are, are at a much higher spiritual level and going on at a much higher spiritual plane than anyone who might be sort of left in the trenches, as it were. Today, uh, we're going to go on a bit of a journey. And in this journey, we're going to be continuing our look at First Peter, chapter 2, uh, where Peter is going to be giving us some good advice about how we should be living our lives as servants. Although I desperately want to change the title of this talk to Live Good Lives at Work. Because I think that this is really what, what, what Peter is going after in these verses. As we go through today, I will be taking you on a little bit of my own personal journey as I sort of come to uh, realize what, what God is, is doing in, in my life. But as we go through these verses, there's going to be one thing that is going to come back to you again and again. And it's this thought, that God wants to come to work with you. God wants to be at work with me. God wants to be at work with you. And this simple, simple thought is actually so incredibly profound. And we're going to come back to it and look at it again and again as we look at this, this, this Christian work uh, ethos from different, um, from different angles. So, if you've got your Bible with you today, uh, or if you've got it on an, uh, your Bible on an app, I encourage you to turn with me. A word of warning, though. There are some verses we're going to read this morning which are not nice, and I wish they weren't in the Bible. But they are. And actually, they've got really good lessons for us to learn. And so we'll grapple with them as we go along. Okay, so let's just start then uh, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. And remember, on this journey that we've been through in 1 Peter, we've, we've covered some amazing ground already, haven't we? You know, in the first chapter of Peter, you know, Peter has reminded us that, that, um, that we have a, a, a secure inheritance that um, we've been giving new birth into a, a living hope, that our future is secure, that who we are is secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
And he's talked about how the fact that we've, we, in, in, in response to this, should be growing up in, in holiness, to be holy as our Father is holy. And, and he's talked about the fact that um, we, we then need to start working out what this Christian life looks like in, in our communities. And um, a couple of weeks ago, we're talking about part of that is the fact that we have to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. Today, we change tack slightly. And we pick it up from verse 18, where Peter writes this, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but to those who are harsh. Now, straight away, a number of you have got problems with these, these verses. Straight away, Peter starts talking about words we don't like to use. Words like submit. Words like slaves. Now, the whole concept of slaves that, that, that Peter is talking to here is an important one to just tease out for a minute because I think it gives a lot of context to what he's saying. Back in first century Greco-Roman times, which is when Peter is writing, he's writing to these, to these church members scattered throughout Asia. And the word that he uses for slaves is not one which would be used for a slave who was sort of um, uh, beaten or tortured or something like that. The word that he uses is literally one that, that, that is called, uh, that, that would be translated household servants or household slaves. Now, I'm not an expert on first century uh, life, and so I do have to do a little bit of reading to try and understand this. And from reading guys who know a hang of a lot more about it than me, they, they, tell, they, they, they tell me that these household slaves were quite different from the concept that we have in terms of slavery. When we think of slavery, we think of the, the Afro-American times, how, how it was absolutely terrible what was done. It was all based on race and there was no hope. There was no way that, that they could get themselves out of slavery. They were there. They were slaves forever. Well, in first century Greco-Roman times, these household slaves weren't quite the same. As part of being household slaves, they were involved with what they work around their house, but they were very much involved with the family business. So, there's, so, so many of them picked up quite a lot of skills in that, business skills and things like that. Many of them learnt to, to, to read and write and uh, accountancy and things, all those sort of things often came in with it. They're often busy in the marketplace. They represented the family uh, in, in the market squares and things like that. And there was hope for the future because many of them earned their freedom after 10, uh, 20 or 30 years. Now, it was a long time for sure, but many of them earned their freedom. And so a number of people actually chose to be these household slaves because then that could be their ticket for citizenship. Uh, and, and so that they could be known as to be a, 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 a full citizen. Now, having said that, these were not free people in the sense that when you are a household slave, you were still considered as a society, in society then as a nobody. All right? You had no rights. 
uh, the 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 people of the day the, would would simply not address servants at all, and so Peter writing this to these slaves breaks a whole number of protocols just in the fact that he says that actually you are worthy of being noted. But the question for us is then, where does that fit in with our modern society? Now, my children would argue very, very strongly that this is very clearly speaking about kids. That same similar thing of being trapped in slavery, no choices, forced to do work like dishes, cleaning your room, stuff like that with no option, and then eventually you get your freedom after about 20 years. <laughs> but the reality is, um, this is most probably more akin to us in the employee-employer relationship. About a quarter of the population uh, at the time of this writing were these household slaves. There was a massive number of people. They're really important for the economy. They're, they're, they're the workers. And so in many ways, a lot of what is written to them applies to employees now. They didn't have the good laws about uh, employee rights and, and things like that back in those days. And so when Peter is writing to these, these, these uh, household slaves, these servants, he is in, a, in effect writing to a lot of ordinary people who are working hard. And he says to them, submit to your master. You could imagine then, if this is a, is, is, a, is a group of people who were said that they are worthless, that they're of no right, they have no value, you could imagine these people then when they came to know Christ. You can imagine the great freedom that they suddenly realized that actually I'm not a nobody, I'm a child of God. You can imagine the, the, the great joy that they would have inside as they understood that, that actually they have a purpose here. And, and, and you, could, you could understand the, 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 the great joy when they realized that actually through Jesus Christ, God, God has, has done away with, with these labels we put on of slave and free, uh, the labels of, of race, the labels of gender. They count for nothing because... We're all one in Christ. And you could imagine then that, that these are the people who, who, who are coming to, to Christ. And so Peter is writing to them, and, and they must be thinking to themselves, well, what do we do with this great freedom that we now have in Christ? How do we live it out? Do, do we leave our households? Do we go and set up some commune somewhere else where, where all the Christians can gather together and, and just be a little safe commune? Should, should I be looking to, to do something else? Should I be going into full-time ministry? Should I be like a Paul? Should I be like a Peter? Should I commit everything to him? And Peter says, submit to your masters. In other words, he says to them, just stay where you are. Don't panic. Stay right where you are. I want to work through you where you are working. Paul goes on and he writes in his letter to Corinthians 
he, he, he builds on the same theme. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can earn your freedom, do so. So in other words, if, you, if you've got to the end of your time and you can earn your freedom and that's what you want to do, go for it. But if, if, we, if where you are in life at the moment is, is a household slave, then don't worry. But each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were when God called them. So don't panic about your job or thinking that you're doing something which might be worthless. That's not the case at all. You are where you are meant to be. Submit to God's direction where you are. Work where you are. Now, I'm not saying, and I've got to clear this right, sure, for some people, there is a, a, a distinct call to do ministry work, to, to perhaps leave the occupation behind and, and things like that. And, and so that's all great. But actually, for the majority of us, me included, God often actually just says, stay right where you are because I've got you there. And the third thing that Peter says in that little verse is that we do it out of what? Out of reverent fear of God. Now some of you with some of the different versions will have a slightly different wording to this first verse. Some of them might read something like um, uh, slaves uh, submit to your masters in all fear. Uh, things like that. Because when Peter wrote it, the object of the fear was not necessarily stated as to whether it was the master or whether it was God himself. But the word Peter uses when he talks about the fear here is a word which he uses in chapter 1 to talk about the reverent fear of God. It's not a fear of shaking your boots terror that someone might have for a cruel master. The word fear is a reverent fear, which can only be reverence to God. And so I think the NIV has done that right, and just making that a little bit clearer and saying, actually, we submit where we are to our masters, to our employer, whatever you're doing, but you do it in reverence fear of God, reverent fear of God. Now, to do that, we need to understand one thing, and that is, well, what, what is God's view of work? How does God view work? If we're supposed to work out in reverent fear of him, then, then what does he think about work? Now, this topic in itself is a massive topic, and I'm not going to cover it all in one in, in, in one slide, but I'm going to try to give the key points of it, and this is, and sort of break it down. This is the highlights of what God thinks of work, I think, when I read the Bible. It's not an exhaustive thing. 
But the first thing I think we should be noting is that when we read the Bible, we see a God who works. We don't come to worship a God who is passive and inactive. We worship a God who is alive, who is real, who is working. When you pick up the Bible and you, and you start reading it, you see God at work from beginning to end. If you just take the very first Bible, book of the Bible, for example, and start at Genesis chapter 1, where you're looking at the creation, there you see God's mighty hand at work in, in, in making this, this beautiful world in which we live. And I absolutely love it when you, when you read that account of creation because from day three onwards, you sort of got, you, you have God at work during the day forming things. And then from day three onwards, he sort of stands back at the end of the day and looks at it and says, it was good. Sort of like a, a, a master artist who at the end of the day has, has just added a, a, a new feature to their painting. They stands back and it is good. Like a, like a builder who, who has just created a, a, a beautiful structure and can stand back and say it was good. Well, our God was, was working in creation and he was standing back and saying it was good. It was very good. But God didn't stop working at creation. You read about him how he planted the garden of Eden and even after the fall, when Adam and Eve had sinned and turned away, he didn't stop working. He was busy making some clothes for them. And then throughout scriptures, God continues to work. When Jesus Christ was, was brought before the Sanhedrin because he had cured someone on the Sabbath, and they're saying, what are you doing curing someone on the Sabbath? What did he say to them? What was his defense? His defense was this. My father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. God is a God of action. God is a God of work. But the second point is that God created us to work. He didn't create us to sit around doing nothing. You'd think Adam and Eve had it the easiest of everyone, weren't they? They were put it in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect, was it not? So what did God say to them when he put them in the Garden of Eden? Did he say, pull up your sofa, put your feet up, relax. I'll, I'll, I'll get the angels to bring some cocktails by the, by, by the, um, by the, by the waterfall for you. And uh, you just don't do anything. No, it's not. Even in the Garden of Eden, even before the fall, God says to him, there's the garden, work it and take care of it. Doing something, working, is how God created us. And not only did he create us, but we are commanded in the Bible to work. In Colossians, Paul writes it this way, slaves, Again, obey your earthly masters and everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to carry their, fla their favour. Now, can I just pause here? This is a really important verse to me. If we can just park everything else I've said up till now because I love my curries um, and I'm, I'm a bit of a curry cook and I was really, 
really pleased when, when, I, when I first found this verse. Um, and, and I need to actually point it out to my children that the curry is, in fact, in the Bible. Um, so so it's, that's all right. So. All right, okay. Switch back to where we were. So, so anyway, so Paul is saying to these, to these slaves, when you're there, when you're working, don't work just when your master is looking at you. You know, to, to, to make sure that you're seen to be working hard, to, to be seen to get in their good books and things like that. Paul's, Paul's advice is far beyond that. He says, no, 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 no. You work at it. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord. Doing your job on a day-to-day basis has got nothing to do with looking good for your boss. Working on a day-to-day basis has got nothing to do with just punching in in the morning and punching out at night. Paul is saying in these verses, and, and, and it's the theme of the Bible, that actually whatever you do, work at it with all your heart because you are working for the Lord, not your employer. And take joy in it. So God's work of you is that it's important. He himself is a, is a worker and is at work. He has created us to work, to get worth out of work. And he's commanded us to work, to work with all our heart. But to who? To him. Because it brings him honor. And it brings him glory. But there is a warning that comes with work. Tim Keller, uh, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, and if anyone's interested to to read a thought-provoking book about how this whole Christian life plays out in the the workplace and stuff like that, Tim Keller's book there, I think, is is an excellent one to to throw ideas around. But Tim Keller uh, commits one of the chapters of his book to to the fact that he thinks, and I think quite rightfully, that, that, that our work actually exposes our idols. It brings to, to life what really controls you. Because doing work suddenly gives us income. Income then we can spend. And all of a sudden we see whether or not we have the, the, the idol of self-indulgence in terms of what we spend our money on. We, we see if we've got the idol of self-comfort in terms of how we spend. We see whether we've got the, 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 the idol of, of, of pride and, and knowing whether or not we can get the, the, the biggest house or the nicest car. It brings to life the idols of, of ambition. You know, wh- why is it you want to work up that ladder at work? Is it, is it to make your name greater? Is it to satisfy you? But we've just been told we need to work everything with our heart as if we're working to God because it's, it's to him that we work. It's to him that gets the glory. And so as we work, work exposes our idols. And we need to keep asking ourselves, what is really controlling me? What is really controlling my work? Is God in this at all? The second form 
Oh, so, 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 so the first form of, of living that, that Peter calls us to do as Christians in the workplace is submissive living. He calls us to submit to where we are, to our employers, to be, uh, he, 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 he calls us to stay where we are and live out our Christianity amongst our, in our workplace. And he says to do it out of reverence for him, the creator God, who is the ultimate worker. And he says to do it whether or not your boss is good or bad. Doesn't matter what sort of boss you have. What matters is how you work before God. And this living submissively changes completely where we think we are working for God. It changes where we think we work for his benefit. Because all of a sudden we realize that actually our day-to-day work is where God wants to be. He wants to come to work with us. And so when we work on a day-to-day basis, we should be living as full-time workers of God. We should be working full-time in the ministry in our workplace. And so that when we, when we teach, we teach to honour God. We teach with all our heart and with excellence. If it's building, we create, we build to honour God, to work for Him. If we're uh, 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 an, an engineer, if we're an accountant, if we're a doctor, if we were uh, a, a coffee, a, a barista, if, if we were a cleaner, no matter what we do, we're told to work with it with all our heart and reverence for God because that is the place he has put you to work out your Christianity. And we do it in full-time ministry of him. The second lot of living then that, that Peter talks about in this letter is the part that I really wish he hadn't included. Um, because this is in many places where the, the rubber hits the road. And I've entitled this little section of verses Suffering Living. Because there is a call here for us to suffer in our workplace for the name of of God. And that makes all of us a little bit nervous. It says this, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable for all God. Oh, isn't that hard? Peter is saying that when you live your life out in your workplace, you will suffer because of it. You will be jeered at, perhaps. You will be perhaps taken advantage of because of your Christian stance. You might be mocked or you might be scoffed at. And Peter says, God thinks it's commendable. Well done. 
When we suffer for God, we want God to, to, to ride in on a, on, a, on, a, on a stallion and rescue us from that place. But these verses don't say that at all. Verses say, man, if you suffer in your workplace, if, if people think you are funny because of your faith, well done. Don't look to escape that. It's commendable before God. And so when you think of, of leaving, oh, I've got to leave my workplace because, you know, I, I just find that it's really hard. Um, I'm the only Christian in my workplace, perhaps, or, you know, I'm getting a hard time because of my faith. God doesn't say, run away from that work. He says, well, you're feeling it. You're feeling it. Well done. Because my son was just the same. This whole thought about Christian um, not suffering for their faith is very much a, a Western worldview. And it's, and, it's, and it's a shame that we don't have the theology of unjust suffering perhaps uh, more readily in our mind. The theology of unjust suffering says that we, we suffer unjustly. And it's not the sort of um, sermon series that would fill the pews or fill the churches. People come along and say, well, you're going to suffer because, of your, because you're a Christian. You're going to unjustly be called names. You're going to be unjustly looked over for a promotion because of your Christian stance. And yet that's what the Bible teaches This view that Christians shouldn't suffer is a, is a Western view. And most of our brothers and sisters around the world don't live in that. For most people in the world, living out their Christian faith is a matter of choosing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. I just put this book up here. I introduced it earlier this year. And I'd really encourage, if you haven't read it, to read this outstanding book called The Insanity of God. It's written by a guy who, who thought he gave up everything to go be a missionary for God overseas. But then his faith is rocked when there is, 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 is family loss in that missionary setting. And then the second half of the book then, he rediscovers his faith as he travels the world, meeting with, 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 with churches in the persecuted uh, in the persecuted um, world where he finds that very much that the, the, the God is, is alive and well, that these people were, were suffering on a daily basis. He, he recounts a story of, of, of talking with some of the, the Russian leaders and saying, well, how did you, how did you handle with all this, all this um, imprisonment, all this beating and stuff that you, you, you went through? You know, why aren't you, 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 you telling more people about it? And he said to him, as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, so our suffering will come. They lost jobs. They lost their homes. They were separated from families. All for the name of Jesus Christ. But it's amazing when you read on and then read the, um, uh, the, 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 the wonderful work that God is doing through them and their witness. So let us get rid of the thought that the Christian life is comfortable and prepare ourselves for the suffering. Because, as I said, Paul Peter goes on to say, it's just as it was with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as if, 
as if we need any more reason to be prepared for suffering. He brings us to the, the example of Jesus Christ. And he says, to this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found on his mouth. Christ was perfect. He did absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, you and I do a bit wrong. Actually, quite a bit wrong, to be honest. But Jesus Christ, he was perfect. He's the only one of us who could really say he fully, unjustly suffered. And Peter says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus Christ suffered, he gives us the example of what to do when we suffer for his name. It's not to retaliate. It's not getting back. It's not a tit for tout. It's not, I've been hurt by this person, so I'm going to hurt him back. It's not a tweet for a tweet. It's not to retaliate, but to love. It's not to threaten, but to submit. That's hard. Does that mean sometimes we're actually going to be walked over? Well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes, for God's name, we will be walked over. And we're to take Christ's example and hand that to God. Because he is perfect. And so this unjust living, the suffering living then, completely changes how we as a Christian worker then respond to our workmates. How we respond in the work environment becomes completely different because we're not one to retaliate. We're not one to, to, to get one over. But we're one to submit, to hand things to God, to love. The fourth form of living then that Peter implores us to do in these verses is secure living. Now initially when you read these verses, you might think that Peter has just sort of gone way off on a tangent when he hits here. You know, he's going through the fact that we need to submit and then we suffer. And then he seems to, 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 to launch full into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you think, where is Peter going with this? What's he doing? Is he sort of just gone off on some sort of tangent? But actually I think it's not a tangent. It's there for a particular reason. And, so, and that reason is the fact that this gospel of Jesus Christ that he's about to explain is the sole basis on which we can submit. It's the sole basis on which we can actually happy suffer because we know who we are and that we're secure in him. Let's read this verse again. Let's read the verse then. Verse 24, it says this. He himself, that's Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter is just calling again from, from uh, Isaiah 53, the, the great chapter about the suffering servant. 
And he's highlighting to us the fact that what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us gives us a security we can never lose. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, he bore our sins completely. Our sins past, our present and future were completely paid for. We stand completely secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And not, not only that, but we are healed. We are healed by his sacrifice. So our souls are no longer uh, ripped apart or in, in shreds or, or separated from God, but now, now we are, are, are healed on the inside. Our souls are complete. We know what it is to, to be back into a, an intimate relationship with our creator God again. And, Jesus, and Peter says, use this, this, this wonderful uh, security that we have in Jesus Christ, this wonderful finished work that we have in Christ, use this to power your righteousness. So we don't live for sin any longer, but we are powered to do the right thing, to live for righteousness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is central to the Christian faith. It is the anchor. It is the solid rock upon which we can stand secure. Our position as a child of God is 100% secure, and there is nothing that is going to happen today that is going to be able to shake that. And Peter is saying, be empowered by that as you live out your Christian faith in the workplace. But the gospel of Jesus Christ radically changes also the way that we see people. Because all of a sudden we understand with our Christian worldview that we are all sinners in need of a saviour. It's just the fact that we happen to know the saviour. And so that the people at work the people who you might come across, um, the, the, the clients who really grate you, who annoy you, uh, the patients who just come back again having completely ignored everything you said last time, they are precious. They are precious in God's sight. As you see these people, put a big label above them saying, loved by God. Put a big label above them saying, Christ died for this person. And then see how, you're, how you respond to them. Then see how that affects your way in which you, you deal with these difficult people. Interesting, when I was preparing for the sermon, I uh, asked one of my colleagues, who's not a Christian, by the way, I said, I said to her, um, how do you see my Christian faith affecting my work? Um, it's a reasonably brave question to ask in the workplace. And one of the things, one of the first things, she did say a few things actually, which is quite interesting. One of the first things she says is she thinks it affects my ability to deal with difficult people and difficult families. What she doesn't know is that she is absolutely right. Because when I'm approaching those people, I am busy praying to God, God help me. This person is loved by you. They just may not know it. 
This person Christ died for, they just may not know it. And it's interesting that that is the very first thing that she says that comes out in, in how it affects my work. And the final thing about our living that Peter implores us to do then is in the final verse. And I've called this shepherded living. I don't even know if that's a word. Um, no? Did I see some English? No? Look, I think it should be a word because um, it's a fact that we are, we are being shepherded. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, perhaps that doesn't quite work. Um, but, but the final verse here is Peter is saying, not only are you completely secure in your position in your Christian faith, he's saying, God is with us and he's going to shepherd and he's going to oversee you as you do life, including at work. And he says this, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we don't have a God who then saves us and leaves us alone. We don't have a God who, who, who we have a relationship in one point of time and says, well, there you are, make the most of it. But we have a God who loves us intimately, who promises to shepherd us, to oversee us. A shepherd constantly looks after his sheep, leads along the way, shows them the, the, the way to go and, 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 and what to do. I love the word overseer because the Greek word for overseer is, is uh, this, this word episcopus. Now you might think, well, that's funny. It doesn't mean anything to me. But actually that, that, that noun part of the word is scope. And so it's obviously where we get our, our scopes from. So for our telescope, looking at, at the, the blood moon the other day, uh, not that anyone here could see it, I don't think, um, or the otoscope to look in the air, the uh, ophthalmoscope to look in the eye, or that beautiful stethoscope to listen to the lungs. Um, but, but, but a scope is all about understanding, about, about being able to see clearly what's going on, to, to, to bring understanding. And God says he's our overseer. He understands us perfectly. He knows us beautifully inside out. And he knows what is right for you. And he wants you to take him to work where you are and live out your Christian faith in your workplace. But the beauty of this also is the fact that when we go to work, we don't leave God at the door. I think for many of us, that is a temptation because the truth be, when we've been working for a while, we actually have some pretty darn good skills in our chosen field of profession. Often when we go to work, We've got some good skills and we know that we can most probably make a, a good job of it. And so often we leave God at the door and say, God, you know, you've taken that part of my life. I'm at work now. Let me just get on with this. But God says, no, no, don't let me, don't leave me at the door. Take me to work. Let me to work with you. Let my spirit inside you to, to empower your thoughts today. Help me work with you. Help me to show some of my creative power that was displayed in creation in your work. Help my spirit to work through you, to not be an, a good worker, but to be an excellent worker. Because God gets glorified when we work in his name and to his honor in our workplace. 
God wants to come to work with you. Don't leave him at the door. God wants you to be where you are. He wants you to live your Christian faith where you are. Sure, there might be times where you do need to change your, your job, and, and, and that's fine, and I believe God will, will, will lead some people to change jobs and things like that. But actually, just to change it, just because we're finding it hard to live out our faith there, is not a reason to leave that job. It's a reason to live out your faith there. God wants to come to work with you through submission living, through suffering living, through secure living, and through shepherded living. And he wants to transform where we see our work for God being done. He wants to transform how we respond to those we work with. He wants us to transform how we see the people we come in contact with or deal with. And he wants, us, he wants to transform the way that we see his creative power at work. At work. We're going to pause now. And we're going to return to Christ. Because I do, I do strongly believe that our, our workplace is honouring to God. But I re-emphasise the fact that the only reason we can live out our Christian life at work is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the fact that we stand secure and his body that was broken for us. We know who we are. We don't have to make a name for ourselves. We are a child of the Most High God. And he loves us intimately. And so I think it's good just to pause and take the communion together. And the band's going to come up. And we're just going to finish with a, a couple of songs as we do that. But just in finishing, on the tables there, you'll also see a prayer. This last week, I sat down at my desk at the beginning of a day. Um, and I'm not a big journaler. In fact, I don't write prayers. I don't journal often. But... I just had the sermon just going around in my mind, these thoughts of what God was trying to, to teach me and, and, and tell me and things like that. And I decided to write my prayer down. And I offer it to you as a prayer that you can, that you can take away and use at your workplace as a prayer to remind us that God wants to be at our work with us, he wants to be there. And so up on the communion tables, you'll have the emblems which you can take, the, the bread of, of Christ's body, is the, the, the juice speaking of his blood. But I encourage you to take away a prayer, a prayer that you can look over in your own time, a prayer I hope you will find really encouraging. 
to have at your desk at work, to have at your workplace, wherever that might be. Feel free to take a couple copies if, if you want. And I'm just going to finish. Actually, I'm just going to read through that prayer. Um, I know time's gone, um, but uh, let's just, I'll, I'll read through the prayer and then we'll have communion together. It says, Abba, thank you for the gifts and abilities you have given me. As I come to work, I know that I can make a reasonable job of it myself. But I want it to be so much more. I want my work to be a place where I live out my relationship with you, to bring you the glory you deserve. If this means I have to suffer for your name, then give me the strength to stand firm. Father, I humbly submit myself and my work to you this day. Lord Jesus, thank you for the assurance of my salvation. Because of your finished work, I stand secure as a child of the Most High. Who I am in you is who I was created to be, living in close relationship with my Creator. Nothing that is going to happen today can shake my identity in you. I am a child of God. Holy Spirit, be my shepherd and overseer. Direct my thoughts, purify my attitudes, control my actions. Let grace, love, and truth be evident in all I do. Help me be a blessing to those I encounter today. Let your creative power and your infinite wisdom flow through me as we do this work together. God, you are the ultimate worker and creator, and I look forward to working and creating with you this day. Amen.